Welcome to the Raising Your Game podcast. I'm Lewis Hatchett. In my own journey to professional sport, I was always interested in hearing about the insights, the stories and the ideas behind some of the best in the world. I wanted to know how I could implement those things into my own sport and life as well. So in this podcast, I'll be bringing you conversations from those in the world of sport and high performance, as well as my own experiences and expertise in performance and well-being that you can transfer into your own goals and aspirations. Whether that be in your sport or life, these conversations will give you something that I believe will help you at raising your game. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode with me, Lewis Hatchett. So we're going to get into another review just before we start off. So I wanted to read this one out. This one's from T Chase uh, 97. So I know Tim, actually, I'm aware that this is Tim Chase. And if you're on Instagram, go head over to at True Challenge, go check out some of the stuff that he's doing. Very, very cool. Also working with World Cup winner, Arsenal legend, Gilberto Silva. So if you're a football fan, definitely go ahead over and check out what Tim's doing. He wrote, Great insights, gave the podcast five stars. Thank you so much, buddy. I've listened to the podcast since day one. The guests are great, as are the questions posed to them. Really good to get insight from a pro athlete who had their own challenges during their career. Again, these reviews are really, really special. Like They really are helping out. So if you're able to head over to Apple Podcasts, scroll all the way down to the bottom of the podcast where you can then click write review, submit your uh, write your review, and then click submit. It just really does help with everything and getting this podcast out there further. So again, thank you so much for putting that one in, mate. Also, if you haven't done already, you can register for your interest in my brand new app, Sport Yogi, that is coming out soon. This app is designed from my own frustrations as an athlete growing up, where I wanted to get into things like yoga, meditation, mindfulness, even breath work and breathing exercises. But for me, it was just too spiritual. It was too hippie and I just couldn't get into it. So I ended up after I retired from professional sport, training as a yoga and mindfulness teacher, a breathwork coach, and then adding that in with my training qualifications, as well as my experience in professional sport, so that I could deliver all of this knowledge and all of these expertise and these tools that you can use for your body and your mind in a really easy and practical way. It'll work on things like flexibility, mobility, stabilizing the body balance and then also things like recovery warm-ups cool downs so that you can just access them anytime all the stuff that you potentially forget and don't do but is so valuable to looking after your body also from your mind i want to help you look after and improve your mind and how you think around your sport and your training so there'll be breathwork sessions, there'll be breathing exercises that you can do where you can just plug in your earphones and you can work through these exercises in your own time, in your own space and just working through improving your nerves, your calm, your confidence, de-stressing, whether it's before or after training or games or competition. And this will all about being able to harness stress so you can perform under pressure when you need it most and also really look after that recovery phase of your mind as well we need our minds to recover just as much as we do our bodies and and this tool will help you do just that so again it's born out of my own frustrations of something not being out there directed at sport and training for athletes who wanted to get into this stuff but just felt it wasn't for them 
and you can be one of the first people to try it out. All you have to do is head over to sportyogi.com. There's an easy sign-up form just on the homepage where you can just type in your name, type in your email, and then I'll let you know all the information when it comes out. You'll be one of the first people to try it out. It's super exciting. Let anyone know who is an athlete, a coach, has a team. This will be exactly for them and something that they can use, like I said, in their own time, in their own space. I'm super, super excited about it and it's just going to grow and get better. I'm really, really excited. So yeah, head over to sportyogi.com and find out more and I'll let you know when it's ready. Right, but on to today's guest and this one is a fantastic one. I first heard him on the Joe Rogan podcast where he's featured twice and straight away having heard Joe Rogan talk about him and then have him on, I was fascinated in what he has achieved and what he's doing. Today's guest is Zach Bitter. For those of you that may not know much about Zach, he is now a three-time world record holder, having beaten the world record for 100 miles with a time of 11 hours, 19 minutes and 13 seconds. He then went on to beat the 12-hour record on the same run with 104.88 miles. Just to put that into some context, he ran four back-to-back marathons at a sub-6 minute 48 second pace. Or if you want to work it in Ks, that's 4 minute 14 second Ks. And he ran that for 100 miles. It is a staggering achievement. And then he actually went on to recently get the world record um, for 100 miles on a treadmill. Again, at a staggering pace of 12 hours, 9 minutes and 15 seconds. That was an average of 7 minutes 17 per mile. We go into talking about his training for these incredible distances at such an insane pace and having started doing some more running myself and getting into longer distances and having done a marathon last year, I was just in awe of what this man does. So we got to talk about his training, his diet, the footwear he uses, his tips for those that are looking to get the most out of their Ks or even just upping the amount that they're doing or even if you want to start off. Some of the stuff that Zach talks about, it's really, really achievable, even considering the the way he does what he does. It almost would seem like it's not achievable, but considering he is doing this at such an incredible pace, at such an insane intensity, but he really does break it down and he tells you about where you start, looking at where you're at currently, and some amazing inspirational advice from a guy that is at the top of his game. Just something to be aware of, we have a couple of moments in the podcast where the connection drops out, but it does stabilise and you will get back on track with the conversation, the amazing conversation with Zach, Um, and it does start off a little bit ropey, so it's just something to be aware of, but it is well worth listening to. I'm super excited to give you this podcast, and without any more hesitation, I give you Zach Bidder. Enjoy. Zach Bitter, thank you so much for coming on. This is uh, this is one that I'm really, really excited about. Uh, I really appreciate your time for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Lewis. No worries. We um, the first thing I actually wanted to go into was you recently had the world record for uh, 100 miles on the treadmill, and like for a lot of people, that is something that yeah is 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 a crazy thought. But I wanted to actually know was this was this a goal you were actually working for, or or did this just come about? um because of coronavirus and and the whole sort of being situated indoors yeah it was kind of i was uh, i was aware of some of the mill records for quite some time because brands kind of in the sport uh go after like the 50k the 50 mile and then the 100 mile 12 hour stuff in the past so i kind of knew they were there and i thought they'd be like a 
maybe an interesting thing to do at like a radio show or something someday on the road. But I've really gotten to the point where it's appealing enough to do it when there was other races I could possibly do. So um, I was actually pretty far into a training program for a hundred miler actually over in London that would have been in April. And when March kind of came through and we saw like the cascade of all the cancellations kind of happen, it was, it was clear by the end of March that the likelihood of seeing any type of like organized race in any kind of like full capacity would possibly not be happening at all this year. So at that point I had a kind of a decision to make as to whether I wanted to kind of scale back on training. So that I wasn't necessarily peaking for nothing or kind of carry onward and pick something I could do. So uh, the options were quite limited. You basically have like virtual races. You could do a, a, a time trial, I guess. Um, we do a lot of these things called FKTs in the U S here where you just, you pick a route. It's like this is the fastest time like recorded for it. So that would be an option. And then, um, the other one was the treadmill. And since I had been training for a very flat, actually as flat as it gets, it was on a 400 meter track, a <laughs> hundred miler. I thought like, all right, my specificity of training is not too far off. Uh, you know, being in a very kind of monotonous environment, very like uniform mechanical kind of gate that you're going to use on a treadmill on a track. So, uh, I thought maybe this is the time to do it. And uh, I decided to kind of keep on the, the, the peaking phase of training and kind of pick a date that made sense. And, uh, the middle, middle of May was, was that spot. So, uh, I was, I was really fortunate. Like my first idea was essentially just, well, I'll, I'll live stream it or record it. So it's documented and that will be that. And then once I kind of got some of my sponsors in order track kind of interested in it, it ended up becoming like a, a pretty big production where we streamed it on YouTube and brought in upwards to like, 30 guests and co-hosts and stuff to kind of add some content to it. So it wasn't the running equivalent of watching paint dry, which what 12 hours <laughs> of me on a treadmill would have likely been without the, without the entertainment built in. <laughs> how did you, how did you keep yourself entertained during that time? Like you yourself? Yeah. You know, that, that was the part I thought was going to be the, maybe the biggest challenge was, or the biggest uncertainty because like I had a good idea of what it was like to kind of go through the mental process or wear and tear in a hundred miler on the trails or on the track or something like that. So the, the treadmill was just a different, different experience. And what I ended up doing actually is probably about half the time I was actually listening to the live stream of the guests that were coming on and kind of getting entertainment from hearing them talk about their, like their history, their current training stuff or whatever they wanted to talk about. Um, and the other half the time I kind of just listened to music and passed the time that way. So, uh, the psychological piece to the treadmill puzzle was the most uh, kind of interesting thing, like post event. I knew that was going to be kind of a hurdle to get over because when I would do my longer efforts on the treadmill and training, there was like this little bit of just added incentive, I think, to want to get off yeah. that isn't typically there that I, I don't typically see that in some of my long, I mean, I'll have bad days, like on a long training run, you're like, I just want to be done with this thing. But there isn't like this kind of gnawing, like, just, you know, get me off this machine, even when you're feeling relatively good kind of a mentality. So I kind of knew that was going to be a big challenge. And um, it kind of was, I think I'm curious if that would maybe mellow down a little bit if I did more stuff like this in the future, or just took more cracks at it, because it is something where I think you kind of have to learn the, the potential pitfalls and really get used to that environment enough to, to uh, really knock one out of the park. But um, 
uh, it was it was an interesting uh, variance from what I've done historically. Did it did it all go pretty smoothly? Were there any hiccups along the way, like during that twelve hours? Yeah, yeah. I think there was there's two things that I could easily fix. I think if I did it again, that would be like my like whenever I finish a race, whether I had felt like I just nailed it or whether it went terribly. I used to kind of sit down afterwards and think of like, okay, what are the big movers? Like, what could I do differently that would like gain me the most amount of time back uh, that I likely lost on this particular event? And uh, I did the same thing with the treadmill. And the two that were like kind of the bigger ones were one is I really underestimated how many flu how much fluid I was going to need. Uh, my plan essentially was to try to bring the the house down to uh, you know close to sixty degrees Fahrenheit as I could get it. Uh, partly just because that's what it was at at the Pettit Center when I broke the outright 100-mile world record and 12-hour world record last year. So I thought if I can get it close to that environment, then I'll just kind of plug and play the strategy I used from fueling and uh, and hydration from that. But uh, the reality ended up being that despite my best efforts with bringing thermoset down, an extra fan, and uh single room air conditioner we it just didn't want to come down far quite that far and then i think there's also some nuances with the treadmill machine you're kind of more or less wallowing in your own body heat and the heat that's coming up yeah. from the treadmill because you're not moving anywhere and it, <laughs> and that was just something that i i didn't necessarily give probably enough thought to before whereas when even when i'm on a 400 meter track like you're moving enough where you're running away from some of that stuff and you're kind of creating a little bit of your own circulation uh, you don't get that on the treadmill. So I, I probably realized about an hour and a half, two hours in that like I wasn't taking in enough and that that was going to be an issue if I didn't kind of focus a little more specifically on uh, water and electrolytes and that sort of stuff. So I, I, I got that back on track, I think, um, uh, soon enough before it became too big of an issue where I couldn't really get back from it, which was good. But uh, I think that that probably costed me some time. And then the second thing was, we actually ended up running so much power through like the room I had the treadmill set up in with like all the video equipment, the two treadmills, the air conditioner that uh, we were getting some, a little bit of power shortage where like the, the treadmills wouldn't stop, but like the screen would freeze up. So that was how we were documenting distance and time. So like if the screen would freeze up, but the treadmill would keep moving, it wasn't like calculating my, uh, the time and the distance that I was running. So, uh, uh, we figured it out though that it was a, a power cord issue versus like a treadmill issue. And we ended up running an extension cord across the other side of the house, probably around five hours in, and that made it a lot more smoother. Early on, I was switching treadmills a lot just because the screen would freeze. And I had to jump to the other one so I could have a machine that was counting counting distance for me. And you know, if that would happen like every three miles or so, there's just a lot more switching than I would plan on. So there's like, you stop, get on the other one, start back up, get back up the pace. You start losing some time in there. If you do that enough, but so thankfully we didn't have to deal with that all day and we figured out what the issue was. But, um, one of the, one of the, 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 I guess not benefits, but, uh, downsides to putting on your own event is you got no one to blame but yourself yeah <laughs> i love it that you're trying to you're trying to tweak it and still trying to find improvements in something that is that is like so incredible anyway but um but what's the you're talking about your plug-in and play strategy for for nutrition what is there is there something that you've now probably honed in on and something that you've done over the years but what's can you give mm-hmm. us a little bit of insight into what your plug-in and play nutrition strategy yeah, is on the so day. 
I think I, I probably, I do a little bit different than what I think a lot of people would maybe do. And sometimes I change this too, but if it's going to be an event that's very controllable and I kind of have an idea of how much I'm going to need to take in, I, I typically go for like a liquid, mostly liquid calorie sources. Um, once I start, usually if I can, if I can get away with like say 40 grams of carbohydrate or so an hour, 40, 40 to 50 grams or something like that, then that's not enough to really create a whole lot of stomach issues for me. If I, if I would try to go above that, or if I want to play it safe, uh, I'll want to probably implement a little more solid food in there too, so that I'm not kind of getting this concentrated source of like, uh, caloric beverage in your gut that's going to potentially pull more liquids in there and give you like some sort of stomach issue if you're out there for too long kind of continually doing that but when when the event is like last 12 hours we lean mostly on like calories so that's what i did at the pet here for the outright and, um that's more or less what i did this I had i had some potato chips around mile 87 i think but uh it was all liquid calories so me i follow like more high fat low uh which isn't like a strict diet for my purposes it's like i keep fat and protein highest macronutrient and then i'll bring back like sporadic sporadic but like uh depending on what i'm doing i'll bring back uh carbohydrate sources for like particular purposes so um get away with probably taking in a little less on event day than what I would have in the past when I was following my carbohydrate diet. So that me to maybe hyper focus a little more on a specific product versus kind of having a variety of different options. Um, so for the treadmill, I was using this, this product called Race Plus by a company named S Fuels that uh, I really like their stuff just in, in whatever I'm drinking. So I was going through about, I think I did close to two packs of that or maybe i was i was planning on doing two packs an hour of that but when i kind of had the hydration issue or the fluid issue i started kind of just focusing more on like just doing water and electrolytes for a while to just you know get that dialed back in and i got a little bit more behind on what i would normally take in from a fueling standpoint so i think i probably went through maybe 15 or 16 of their packets of that throughout the course of the day. that was the majority of my of my nutrition on the day well there must be moments like that suck. Like there's got to be a part of it that that you might go right. Okay, I'm going to get to this time of the run, and it's going to be a real tough, tough part to dig in. Which which part mm -hmm. is that for you? Yeah, there's usually a couple spots. Like for me, um, when I'm doing something in the kind of like a really runnable hundred miler, uh, and I'm kind of looking at that like twelve ish hour timeline then there's usually a bit of a low around four or five hours because I've kind of been out there long enough where you're starting to kind of feel a little bit of the wear and tear. It's pretty close to like what my longest long run would have been in training, but there's still a ton left to do. Like you have more than half to go. So if you let your mind kind of hyper focus on that, then you can kind of spiral into a, neg a negative psychology almost. And uh, luckily I've recognize that enough now where I just kind of know like that's the spot where I got to keep my eye on and make sure I stay a little more focused during that. Um, and a lot of it just depends too on kind of how things are going. If you're, if uh, there's not a lot of extra hurdles you didn't anticipate, you can spend a little less mental energy kind of worrying about problem solving and remedying mistakes and things like that. But uh, um, there's, 
so that's kind of the uncertainty piece to it. Uh, I also usually find that it like when I'm doing a race like of that length, I won't have any caffeine really for about the first half or close to the first half. So sometimes when I kind of get to that four or five hour point, I'm getting to that point where like that cup of coffee I had in the morning is like completely worn off. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll start taking in about a hundred milligrams of caffeine an hour after that, starting around hour five or so. And usually once I get to that point, then I kind of feel like I'm getting, I've got a little bit of extra, uh, kind of pep in my step, so to speak. And that, that's usually pretty helpful, but that, that lasts like maybe hour before I start doing that is sometimes a little bit of a low for, I think a variety of different reasons, but it just kind of all kind of hyper congests in that spot. So if I can, if I can break through that, that kind of spot in the run and get to the point where I'm within kind of where my longest long run was, then I'm in usually a pretty good spot. Cause then I can kind of stop thinking about just running all day or running a hundred miles or whatever ends up being, and just think about, I have just one more long run to do, which is you know something I do quite frequently, especially when I'm peaking for, for an event. So then it just becomes something I have a little more kind of point of breath and yeah. a little like wrapping my head around what's left. Yeah. Um, what's the, uh, longest run you've ever done? What's the longest run you've ever done? Uh, I did 125 miles or 200 kilometers. The furthest I've gone. Jeez. Um, so it's, uh, mostly hundred mile type stuff that I've done so far. And then things less or shorter than that too, like hundred K's, 80 K's, 50 K's are kind of the, the go-to's for me. Um, uh, the 24 hours one, I really want to kind of give a good crack at. I've done some 24 hours in the past, for, uh, like with very little to no success. Yeah. But, uh, part of that I think is just, I've always tried to kind of piggyback those into like a, eco race that I was doing that was, you know, more or less a focus on a hundred miler. And then I thought like, okay, maybe I got one more race left in me. I'll try this 24 hour. And I think just what I've learned from doing that is that that event itself kind of is going to take its own specific build up and its own real kind of, um, it needs its own intent, attention versus kind of being a, a second opportunity or, a, a you know, build this off of a previous training, training strategy or training plan type of a thing. So when I get, when I can, when I can finally get that done, I think I'll hit pretty high mileage relative to what I've done so far, but that's kind of an interesting event. Yeah. I, I think the thing that I was just looking up here was your, that run, the stats that you put up after the run, um, that was the one thing that stood out for me was your average heart rate. Your average heart rate stayed at 144 throughout that entire run. And you were going at mm -hmm. 718 mile like that. That is, how do you, how do you, how have you, is that just an accumulation of all the training that you've done over the years? And I also think, because that's like someone else's zone two. Now, if a lot of people don't know about zone two training, you're about 70% of your max heart rate. And that's that's my zone two. But the speed at which you're going, you're flat out for a lot of people there. Um, how is that? That's just accumulated over years and years of training. Or is it something that you've really worked on trying to get your heart rate to to stay as low as it can? Yeah, you know, for for hundred mile races, usually I can get my average heart rate up a little higher than that. Like usually around one fifty is kind of where it'll end up playing out. In some some things, you know, these events sometimes take place like in hot weather climates and things like that, which skews the data a little. But um, yeah, I think like for me, when I get to the point where I'm really hyper focused on practicing race day intensity, 
it ends up being kind of just under or close to my aerobic threshold or kind of like that top end of zone two. And so I just spend a ton of time developing that system, both like in my peaking phase as well as kind of in my base building phase. Uh, so I probably spent more time running that kind of relative intensity than any other in my, in my training. So it, it's probably where I'm the most efficient, I would guess, just from the exposure to it that I've had. And uh, it's also the one I can probably move the needle on the most in terms of dropping my overall pace at that intensity. So usually when I'm kind of getting really fit within that system, I can get down to like close to six or just under six minute mile pace at about 155 beats per minute, uh, which is right at my aerobic threshold. And when I know I'm down there, then it's just a question of like, how long can I sustain that? And then that's what I'm kind of working on during like my peaking phase of training, where I'm just trying to build volume at that intensity so that I can kind of have the tools I need on, on race day if it's a hundred miler. Yeah. This, I mean, I've, I've actually recently started doing more long distance, well, more long distance compared to what my sport offered because we were more about speed endurance and speed events and, sure. and, and a bit more power-based. And I think there's this misconception when people get stuck into like running and getting into their air running is that they have to, every session has to be, be like balls to the wall and nailing it and just flying out there. And you mm -hmm. see heart rates hitting way above like 160s to 170s. And and uh, I was actually in that category. I was like, I think it's the misconception you get from the societies like go harder. Just if you're not working, if you're not literally like dying on the floor after your, your run, you're you're done. That's not, mm -hmm. that's not a good session. Um, and the thing that's been so interesting is that pulling back and going so slow and keeping your heart rate lower. And then that's built. I've just suddenly seen the difference now that it's, it's changed, but I mean, your pace is, is that, that zone two for you is, is insanely high. Yeah. You know, I find that if you can really develop that kind of system, then there's, that's kind of like the perfect spot where you can go almost anywhere from. So like when I get really fit within that and I get, get my pace down to around six or just under six at that intensity, then I know I'm probably only maybe six or eight weeks away from peaking from whatever I want to peak for, for the most part. Like if I decide I wanted to do a 5k, I would just start doing workouts that are going to simulate kind of that, that intensity. Or if I want to do a hundred miler, I can, well, the hundred miles may be a bad example because I'm probably just going to continue on at that intensity then, but um, it kind of sets you up. It kind of gives you that foundation. And I think you're, you're spot on. A lot of times people will, they'll get that kind of like go big or go home mentality and feel like they have to be sprinting. And they're, uh, they're just taking volume off the table by doing that or avoiding building kind of the foundation on which they're going to be able to put some of those type of workouts on down the road and get that benefit from them as well. So I find it really interesting always when you see folks that are doing kind of like a more explosive sport and they talk about kind of their zone two development or their base development and kind of where they're structuring that stuff. Cause I think like, you know, even, even those folks can really lean on, lean on a strong foundation in that in order to make improvements kind of at, even at the more uh, specific things to their sport or the intensity of the sport they're doing. Yeah. It's probably just not the, it's probably not seen as like the sexy training. That's probably why. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's just, just grinding out miles after miles or kilometers yeah. after kilometers. <laughs> yeah. Um, did, when you started doing that, did you start seeing your pace drop at that intensity though? Or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I have like, it started to, it's probably the spot started to change now. It's, it's mm -hmm. really started to, to shift now. I think, um, yeah, like I said, most of our stuff was like speed interval 
training and and I ran my first marathon like last last year and that was that was a shock to the system um mm-hmm. but I mean I, I'd even heard you say that marathon is just is just a a different different animal in the sense that you have to you're constantly pushing it constantly pushing it and if one small error could cost you and um on my training leading into that marathon I didn't I was given the, the spot for a charity and just out of nowhere but it was I if I had my time again I would definitely go down this route that I'm doing now and I 100% know I would be way better off because all of my training when I was doing my marathon was really pushing the high end all the time and I didn't really know mm-hmm. what I was doing just didn't know what I was doing at the time because that's not why my training systems have been that's, I'd never been in that world before and um yeah the benefit I'm seeing now just in general day-to-day running and and uh that base fitness is is raising because of this zone two training yeah yeah I mean, the marathon is a really interesting one too because like a lot of times the intensity that you can sustain is going to be kind of in this gray area kind of territory where it's kind of between your aerobic threshold and your lactic threshold. So you're not really like in this point where you're developing one of those two kind of major ones. So you, you, at a certain point, you have to kind of start putting in work that's at goal race intensity. So you find yourself in a little bit of a goofy spot, but um, it's a, it's an interesting, interesting uh, event to follow for sure. Yeah. And um, where did, where did all this stuff start for you? Like, how the hell did you get into running these distances? Was it something that was in your family? Was it, was it just something you saw one day and I thought, this is what I'm going to do? Yeah, I, you know, I, I got into running pretty early in terms of like my exposure to it. And I think part of that was just like my parents were really open-minded about what I was doing with extracurriculars and sports and things like that. They never really said like, oh, you're going to do this or you're going to do that. But they said, you should probably be doing something. So I was always, you know, fortunately I was, I wanted to be doing a lot of different things. So I tried like all sorts of different sports and then through kind of trial and error found out that like distance running was the one I was probably more inclined to do naturally, um, at least at a young age. So uh, I kind of started taking that a little more seriously in high school and eventually in college. And that's kind of where I started to really learn about just like the methodology around training for specific races and like why you're doing certain workouts at certain times. And uh, you know, I, I also kind of recognized that of all the different workouts we would do in college, the long run was always kind of my, my favorite one and the one I looked forward to the most, um, versus dread, which the short interval sometimes provided the dread <laughs> for me. But, uh, um, yeah, so I think after college, then when I didn't have like the team structure and the coach and all that stuff, I just kind of gravitated towards building volume and running, running longer and running slower. And eventually that kind of led me into a, to trying out some ultra marathons. And, uh, in 2010, I ran my first, uh, it was a, it was a 50 mile or an 80 K and, uh, um, fell in love with it pretty much right away. And I waited a whole year to do another one. But after that, uh, I did, I think three, three 50 milers or 80 Ks in about a nine, nine week time frame in the end of 2011. And then I was kind of hooked and decided I'm going to just train for these uh year round more or less. How much of what you're doing is, um, competing? Are you actually competing against other people or because most of the stuff you see that you've done recently is kind of competing against yourself. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But how much yeah, you know, the other people? Yeah. It's interesting because I think the sport in, in North America, especially the trail side of ultra marathon running has grown like a ton. The entire sport has, but like the trail running side of it's grown much faster. So that's where a lot of times you find a lot of the competitive races or more competitive races. Um, 
so a lot of times when it's like, you know, you're, you're not necessarily targeting a specific time as much as you're trying to like, you know, beat other competitors. That's where I'll find a lot of that. Whereas with some of this more like kind of contrived loop type setup things or the treadmill things, you're more or less chasing a time that someone else said, or, uh, going after like a time you think you're capable of. So for me, when I first started ultra running, you know, my, my first exposure to the sport was a, a very runnable trail. And I didn't really connect the dots yet that like there was actually like as wide of a variety out there as, as there is. So it took me a little bit to kind of figure out like, you know, if I'm training on flat roads and training in flatter, more runnable areas, then, you know, racing those type of trains is going to be in my best interest in terms of, a, in terms of specificity. So I ended up doing some flatter races and, and really liking them and feeling like, okay, I felt like I could execute that that event a lot better. There was more, I felt like I was more within my skill set, And uh, that kind of led me to doing my first timed event, which was the Desert Solstice Track Invitational in 2013. And there I, I broke the American record for 100 miles and the 12-hour world record at the time. And uh, kind of figured like, this is really cool that you can kind of control so much in those environments and therefore uh, really kind of test your improvement maybe a little more accurately than you can on some of these uh, like events that are on like mixed terrain where you might have drastically different temperatures from one year to the next, or the course might even change. A lot of these are like that where, you know, you look at this historic course that's been around for decades and you look at what it looked like 20 years ago and what it looks like today. And it's like, this isn't even the same, <laughs> the same course. <laughs> So you're measuring yourself against like, I guess maybe like a, a less accurate um, prediction. Uh, and it's maybe a little harder to tease out, you know, if you perform better or worse than the year before. Whereas when you get to these really controlled environments, you, you've scaled it down enough where the variables that are uncontrollable are small enough. You can tease out a little easier. I kind of got curious over how I do these races see like well how far improve where is it where i go any faster from the interest in that i was also fortunate that my attempt was close enough to the 100 mile world that that kind of gave me a little uh target in 47 and then the world record at the time was 11 so i thought like that's a, a logic to maybe work towards and then if i get past that i can keep working on trying to get faster yet if I think I go quicker. And, and that's kind of where I got into that kind of like, I guess, versus you or you versus some previous Marsat type of uh, racing strategy. Yeah, that, that's, um, the, you were saying like the community is growing and, and it's grown over the years. Did, it, did, did you have to go and search out? I mean, you must have people that you train with sometimes. So was there... Did you have to go and search out people that are doing this, like someone that is is kind of, I guess, crazy enough to do this with you? Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's it's funny because like it's it's like a lot of these like kind of smaller niche sports where if you don't know much about it or anything about it, like it's just like hardly even there. But like once you kind of get into the community, you recognize like where it all is, and I would imagine it's like that for other small sports too, like where you know if you don't really look into it it's like well there's only got to be a couple people doing that and then you get into it and you're like oh there's actually a lot of people yeah <laughs> said that i had to find them so you do do that over the years i think that like even here in, here in the u.s we have kind of like different regions 
and each region will have like uh, you know a lot of folks that kind of group together more or less and if you get small enough scale where it's like cities of like running groups and you know some of them are ultra marathon or trail specific and things like that so um you can usually kind of find find the people that are near you and uh now that i've been living in my wife and i moved to phoenix about two and a half years ago and and phoenix arizona is a little unique i think because there's a race organization here called aravipa and they put on like something in the neighborhood of like 35 events a year. So mm-hmm. like, there's just so many options. And with that comes like this big kind of group of folks that are interested in it. So I'm kind of in a little bit of a, of a sweet spot, I guess, in terms of like interest in the trails and interest in ultra marathoning and stuff like that with, with uh, what they've laid out in, in their business and their race organization, which has been really nice in terms of uh, having options to go to some of these events more frequently without having to travel a lot and, um, meet people that are also kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. How do you fit your lifestyle around everything that you do? Is there stuff that you like doing away from running that you, that you try to fit in? Yeah. You know, a lot of it is still related with running. It's just not necessarily my, my specific training. So mm. I definitely have like a lot of irons in the, like the running world type of stuff. So, um, I do a lot of coaching for for individuals and stuff too. So programming other people's training and consult call type stuff. Um, I've gotten really interested in kind of nutrition and things like that. Just um, for my own purposes, more or less, I got curious as to like, you know, how am I going to put myself in the best position for me and and that sort of stuff. So I've, I've definitely like done a lot of, like a, a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say research, but just a lot of interest and hobby around that type of stuff. Um, podcasting too has been something I've always loved to, to do. I, I started going on podcasts pretty early in my ultra running. Cause I just really kind of like that, that piece to the like kind of virtual world versus like your standard social media type kind of short messaging, I guess you call mm-hmm. it versus long form. And then uh, a couple of years ago, started my own podcast too. So, uh, spend time doing that. And, uh, the interesting thing about that is I'm sure you can, can relate is like, there's that whole back end side of editing and, yeah. putting everything together it's, yeah <laughs> it's kind of a cool skill set to learn though and it didn't come without its growing pains for sure but it's once you kind of learn how to do it it's kind of fun to know that you can can splice the, up videos and edit audio and all that stuff and try to clean it up as much as possible yeah there's a rabbit hole to be going down there yeah that's for sure <laughs> um i i remember the first time i i heard you speak was on the joe rogan podcast and um it was i think it was your first or second time on there actually and um You'd mentioned about carnivore diet then, and, and he brought it up, but you came back with an answer, which I thought was a really interesting for me, which was you kind of actually had almost a horses for courses way of looking at your, your nutrition, where you were, you were dialing in more carbohydrates when you were needed to, and then you were taking it away. Um, and you also had a pretty similar uh, response to footwear, which I'll get onto, but um, your nutrition side, you had done carnivore diet, or are you still on carnivore diet? So for the way I like to people is like for me I look at it as like there's look at kind of my style there it's a little bit different than the average person I think is that like there might be periods of the year where I'm very low training and recovering from like a event so my energy expenditure might be resting essentially whereas you know if I go out and run or race or if I'm in like peak training and back to back thirty mile long runs you know that's like a totally different like picture so 
you can find me like burning two to three times my resting metabolic rate, or you can find me like barely getting out of the chair. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there, I try to like explain that so that people don't necessarily get kind of too confused with one portion of my like nutritional approach. Cause if they pick mm-hmm. what I'm eating out of my peak training week versus my recovery week, they might get like two different pictures and wonder why, like I'm speaking a different message to different groups or something like that. But, um, yeah, so for me, like everything I've done basically for the last almost 10 years now, um, nine years or so, it has been kind of centered around this idea that, uh, for me, my race day intensity is relatively low volume compared to like your traditional endurance athletes. So I have like this, this like kind of opposite or more polarized, like training buildup where I'm doing the least specific things to my goal race intensity early, which just tends to be kind of the shorter, faster stuff. And then I'm kind of working a little more towards uh, things that are more specific to the intensity that I'm going to do on race day, which tends to be kind of like that zone two type stuff that we described earlier. And um, throughout that kind of phase or that cycle, I'll, I'll structure kind of my, my macronutrients a little differently. So like when I'm resting and recovering and doing very little activity, I'll be very, very low carbohydrate, close to like on a classic ketogenic diet, which is where I would be, be more along kind of like that, that carnivore-esque. I've, I've played around with that. I, don't, I wouldn't call myself a strict carnivore, but yeah. I stretch the imagination. Uh, um, I played around with it a little bit for like a couple of weeks at a time just to kind of see what it was like. And um, I mean, the best thing I noticed, I think, was just in terms of me not having to really track a whole lot when I'm in like an off season or recovery, it's pretty easy to know you're not eating any carbohydrates when you're eating mostly fatty meat because yeah. Yeah. you're just by default kind of eating fat and protein and you don't really necessarily have to like pay too much attention to like if there's carbohydrates in that or something like that. Whereas when I start kind of ramping up my training, you know, I'm starting to bring back some carbohydrates in a way where it would be beneficial to kind of match the intensities I'm doing Um, with the mindset that kind of like my max fat oxidation rates are going to be different than they would be if I was following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet year round. So when I get into kind of peak training, you know, I might flex my carbohydrates up to like 20, maybe rarely, but sometimes 30% of my intake. So, you know, that's when I'll get the most of like my vegetable matter um, from things like uh, fruits, uh, potatoes, uh, stuff like that are kind of my go-tos. Um, I'll do some honey and things like that as well. Uh, and that, that kind of like brings in a whole different like angle to what I'm doing. Uh, but usually it's like, if you look at my entire year, I'm probably anywhere from next to no carbohydrates up to at most maybe 30% of my intake from carbohydrates and then everywhere in between, depending on where my training is at. And I've done like a lot of different like types of food to kind of match those macronutrient profiles. Every, everything from like mostly plants to very little meat um, to like mostly meat, very little to no plants. And uh, usually what I, what, what I, where I'm at like kind of currently is just more or less a mixture between, between the two um, where I'm leaning pretty heavily on animal products for my protein sources, just because they tend to be more, more bioavailable. So uh, that's what I'll lean on for a lot of the animal sources. And when I, when I do those, I'll usually lean towards fattier cuts because um, I am trying to eat the majority of my calories from fats. So it just makes a lot more sense to, to keep that in there versus throw it away or, something like that. So, um, 
yeah, that's kind of where, where I'm at now. That, that kind of answer your question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, um, I'd actually been playing around with a more ketogenic diet myself. And I, mm-hmm. again, growing up, probably been told you've got to fuel up the carbs. You've got big games like, for me, a cricket match lasts six hours and, and our ability to do high bursts of energy. So we, we definitely, because we were going more at the top end for sort of power and because it's speed endurance, then we were going to actually need sort of like a higher fuel source for, to begin with. But the thing I've learned, which is amazing in the, over the last few weeks, has been the ability to, for fat, fat oxidation. And mm-hmm. um, I think I listened to a podcast with, it was Peter Atia's podcast, and uh, he was speaking to Inigo, Inigo Milan, a mitochondrial expert, and he was talking about the ability to, to have fat oxidation versus um, glucose oxidation. And mm-hmm. he that that has been something that I didn't think I was it, it was even possible for me to do because I was like, I've just been sold this lie that I just need carbohydrates all the time. But no, I can get up and I don't have to have eaten a single carbohydrate for a couple of days and I can still put in a pretty good run. Um, mm-hmm. And do you think you've you've had to teach your body to do that over a, a long period of time? Yeah, you know, to a degree, I think like when, uh, when I first kind of came around to trying it out, I did probably about four weeks where I did a pretty strict ketogenic diet, where I was more or less trying to keep my carbs under 50 grams a day, kind of the, if you're familiar, like the Finney volume yeah. protocol, more or less. Um, and then once I kind of got into like my training for that, I did notice that like, it was maybe a little more difficult to execute all of my workouts with that kind of like real strict ketogenic diet. So then it was like, well, where can I, where do I bring back some carbohydrates and to what degree? And that just took a little playing around with. And after about maybe one and a half to two years, I kind of came up with uh, a protocol that I felt worked really well for me. That is uh, pretty much in line with what I kind of said that I'm currently doing from a macronutrient side of things. Uh, And and that's where, where I think it gets really interesting. And one part that I'd like to kind of follow over the years is like, you would, on paper, you would think like the sports that are the most like high intensity would be the ones where, okay, this person has to follow a high carbohydrate diet. And um, then you'd have these ones where you're like, you're running all day, like me, well, that person would have to eat tons of carbohydrates to kind of fuel that run. And really those polarizing ends end up being kind of interesting because like mm. something that's incredibly explosive you can only do so much of it. So like your, your, your muscles will fatigue and limit you before your glycogen stores will deplete and cause you to downregulate when you're doing high enough intensity. So that person due to the nature of like the limited amount of volume you can actually sustain in a given week could probably do a stricter ketogenic diet and, and be fine. And then someone who's running like even further than I am at an even lower intensity they could probably do the same thing because they're just never going to get to a point where they're not like oxidizing a high enough amount of fat to get the intensity that they're trying to do accomplished if they want to go that route. Where I think it gets interesting is these like spots in between where mm-hmm. you have like, uh, you have like, it's just intense enough where regardless of your diet, you're going to be dipping into your, your muscle glycogen, but it's not so intense that you can't do it for a long amount of time and build like a whole bunch of volume. So you get into this situation where you're tapping into your glycogen just enough to start to kind of dip into that. But uh, 
you know, over the course of a few days, you'll kind of like, if you think of like a downward staircase is kind of the way it would maybe look in terms of where your, your glycogen is at. And if you're not like accelerating the replenishment of that, then you're eventually get to a point where you like, you, you kind of just feel like you've flattened out a bit. If you're kind of in these gray area intensities that I was describing. And uh, that's where I think you have to get a little more creative with like the structuring of it for what I would call like a high fat, low carb diet, which I think is just like a bigger umbrella because it's not mm. like quite as strict as like a classic ketogenic diet where they're going to be like, depending on who, who's kind of putting it together, you're looking at like less than 50 grams a day, or you're looking at like, like blood millimoles of ketones of like 0.5 or greater are kind of some of those, those benchmarks for that. Um, so I think it's, uh, it gets really interesting. Like when you start kind of adding in like the rest of lifestyle versus, versus the strategy. Yeah, it's um, it must be something you get all the time. What we actually didn't speak about what you do after you, you like once you jumped off the treadmill, what what are you doing straight after that? What's your kind of go to? What's your go to recovery? Like what what's your how are you recovering your body for for all of this punishment you're putting it through? <laughs> yeah, well, the nice thing was it was in the house, so I could go straight to bed. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a little different than like racing overseas or something where you're you're going back to a hotel room or something like that. But um, yeah, you know, after a race or something like that, where I peaked for it, you know, usually I'm giving myself maybe about two weeks where I kind of feel out kind of how I'm recovering. And a lot of times that first week will be little to no running, definitely no structure. And then that second week, I'll start kind of playing around with some running. And if I need more days off, I'll take them. But if I feel good enough to run, I'll run and I'll stop whenever I don't feel like it anymore. I won't hold myself to any type of structure. And, and usually after about two weeks, I feel motivated both mentally and physically to kind of start playing around with what's next. Yeah. Um, the treadmill is a little different just because what was next was still very much in question. Cause you didn't really, there was really no events that were uh, there still really aren't that are for sure going to happen. So I was maybe a little more casual about kind of getting back into a training program. Cause I didn't necessarily want to find myself in kind of like mid fall with like, peaking for a race that's not going to happen or doesn't exist or something like that. Yeah. So I took a little more time, like nu nutritionally. Um, I mean, I'm leaning on a couple of things. I'm just trying to sleep as much as I can in those, those two weeks after, like whenever I'm tired, I try to, you know, go to bed and sleep. I try to stay away from, I try to drink less caffeine than I would normally just because if I'm tired, I'd rather default to a nap um, versus mm -hmm. try to power through it when I'm focusing primarily on recovery and then um, if that's when I'm going to be doing kind of more of a classic ketogenic type of protocol where, uh, you know, I'm not doing anything uh, like physically demanding that would require any type of fast energy source. So it's just a good time of year for me to kind of cut back on the carbohydrates altogether and uh, promote kind of more of a fat oxidation kind of strategy. And um, that's always worked really well for me since I've kind of started doing that. Have you, do you do any cross training? Do you work on like another form of exercise? Do you, yeah, whether that's in recovery or in your training? Yeah, I'll do, in terms of structured cross training, I'll do like some strength work. So like, and I'll usually start implementing that like in the, like after a big event like that, because I just have a little more time and a little less running to be done at that point in time. And, and then I'll carry it into my training plan more or less. But yeah. So like, I like, I like doing kind of some of those like more functional movements or some of those more kind of, uh, foundational lifts. So like squats, 
um, deadlifts, some lunges, kettlebell swings. I'll do some like resisted core type stuff um, as well. And those are the, that's like the structured stuff. If I'm doing an event that is maybe a little more unique where I know there's going to be a substantial amount of like kind of hiking up steep stuff, I'll, I'll do a little, I'll get maybe a little more creative or something with like a stair master type machine from time to time. Or, um, now, I mean, this, the treadmill behind me is, it goes up to 40% incline. So I can basically do any pitch that I need to on that one. Um, so sometimes I'll do like, I'll just jack that thing way up and, and just power hike up it, which is, isn't too far removed from running, but it's kind of different, I guess. So you maybe consider that cross training if you, if you want to be generous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, you're training, you're constantly changing the way you're training and tweaking things and stuff like that. You, um, how, how far is your vision when you're doing stuff like this? So like, do you tend to have like a, it's so it's so meticulous and and like the way you're thinking about this like because I've, I've i've got an incline it's so particular for what you're doing do you look i don't know four eight weeks ahead all the time as to what you've got going on is there a gap in which you need these adaptations to occur so that you can constantly change yeah yeah it's a good question i think ideally like if i haven't gotten injured or taken significant time off um, which has been pretty rare for me in my ultra running. I've been really lucky not to get really injured and not feel like I've really burnt myself down to the degree where I need significant time off. So like usually I'm looking at maybe about a four month window between kind of starting a program and getting peaked for a race. And during that time, um, well, I should maybe back up a bit. Like since I don't need quite as much time between events as maybe I would if I got hurt or if I was starting from, from square one, so to speak, I'm still retaining quite a bit of fitness from the previous buildup. If I only need like, you know, two weeks to kind of get back to training. So if I was going right off the couch or took significant time off, then I would be looking at more like a, a six month or a 24 week time frame. but more, more often than not, it's closer to 16 weeks or four months. And the way I'll do that is the assumption there with the 16 week, four month program is that I already have kind of a lot of that, uh, kind of base zone two type fitness still. Four minutes all out as evenly paced as possible. Um, building volume early on so i might spend like four or five weeks doing those shorter intervals start out with the first week i might do nine or ten minutes total by that final week i might like you know minutes doing it so i'm kind of gradually adding a little more volume over a few weeks and uh really developing that specific intensity which i, I think is really valuable for a sport like mine where on race day and peaking, you're doing like a lot of slow uniform mechanics that are just going to put you up or going to position you to like have more of a chance to get an overuse injury or like a, a imbalance of your like skeletal muscle system. Doing some of that speed work early on raises the ceiling as to what you can maybe get to from an aerobic stamp. You already have that aerobic foundation in place. And then it also kind of just, it's going to build a lot more like strength and resilience to some injuries down the road when you get into kind of the more peaking phase where I'm just out there building a lot of volume at a relatively low intensity. 
So after that, I'll probably spend another four or five weeks kind of just getting a little closer to race intensity, but still not like specifically. And I'll just start like really hitting what you call like a lactic threshold type intensity, which for most folks is going to be about what they can maintain for about 60 minutes all out if they did just a time trial. Yeah. And yeah, so then I'm kind of same process, but with that system where I'm building up volume over a few weeks with that. So I might start out with maybe, you know, 20 to 25 minutes week one by the last week I might be doing, you know, six, maybe 90 minutes of that. And, um, and that kind of carries me into my peaking phase where I'm just going to be doing things as specifically as possible to be doing on race day. So that happens to be a 400 meter track, then doing a lot of long runs. I can be doing a lot of flat running. I'm going to be doing a lot at just at or under my aerobic threshold and really kind of get my face to what I'll be doing on event day. If that happens to be like a more mountain type course, um, last year I did the San Diego hundred. That was kind of where the terrain I was speaking for. So then I'll be focusing a little more on accumulating like a vertical gain and loss. If it's a lot of downhill running, I'll be making sure enough downhill running to kind of get my my muscles used to that that center contraction you're going to get from pounding hill a lot or um if rocky course like running on that has like a lot of rocks and stuff so you get to you know that surface and building kind of some of the stabilizer muscles you're going to need to kind of be stepping on like a varied terrain like that and um you can basically kind of go as deep into the details as you want if you want to really dissect a course and what's going to be available yeah the with your feet how are you looking after your feet like they're getting these are these are your tools like how they how they um how they holding up yeah yeah you know that's uh that's an interesting one i mean the the lost toenails is a, a feature of the ultra <laughs> yeah. <running> community <laughs> that's a cricket so, that's a cricket thing as well man like i promise yeah, you. yeah is, don't, don't have too big for- toes Oh, uh, is that from the cleats? You think, or what so we? So what for us? We because uh, we're basically running in at full pace, and then uh-huh. we we pivot over one foot, so we slam our front foot into the ground. So imagine we're oh. full tilt, jumping, and then basically doing a baseball pitch like as fast as you can, slamming yeah. your front foot into the ground. So it's like eight times your body weight goes through your front leg, and mm-hmm. um, that means your feet like slam into the front of your boot i cut like i cut holes in the end of my my shoe so that my toe has has space to come out so you do have a hole in the end of your boot you just grab a grab a standing knife and just rip it out and and then you've just got freedom but Mm -hmm. yeah there's still the amount of times you're doing that you're doing that over 120 times in a day sometimes and and four days in a row so it's um it's a pretty intense thing and then yeah come sort of end of season september time you can probably say goodbye to your toenails yeah <laughs> that's so funny because like with uh it's it's like the same thing with with ultra running except just like a lot less intensity but a lot more repetition yeah so like yeah, yeah. you're you're busting those toenails up from just a really drastic punch to it whereas like a lot of ultra runners will define as the downhill running just like step after step after step just kind of gradually pushing up against that front of the shoe over time is going to just cause the blisters and the toenails and um, you know, some of it's just kind of recognizing, I think, kind of what your specific gait is like and where your trouble spots are and trying to preempt it. If that's just like, you know, even, even taping up beforehand so that you're not going to get a blister on a spot that's going to compromise your performance, um, and that sort of stuff. But for me, I think a lot of it's just like picking the right, the right gear for your foot and for your specific mechanics. So, 
you know, for me, like when I first started running, I mean, I made all the mistakes. I just wear whatever shoes were around and I'd have patent socks on. And I think one summer when I was first really taking running seriously and running year round and it's like down to five toenails (laughs) (laughs) and then you kind of get a little more wise to that and realize, Oh, they actually make like socks that are specific to like remove moisture from your feet. So you don't have like heat and moisture and friction all combining to create a blister. Or, you know, once I got into ultra running and stuff like that, I partnered with a footwear company called ultra footwear that makes like a foot shaped toe box. So you get a shoe with like that. And even that has a little nuance within it where like, you want that foot shape toe box, but you also need to have the shoe fit the rest of your foot. So you're not just sliding into the front of that toe box too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for some of the low volume foot, there's a model on their lineup that's going to work better for them to be able to lock down the like back in the middle of the foot and still give them that four foot freedom. You some of the wide overall foot might want a different volume uh, shoe to kind of accommodate the their their foot style and uh so for me it's just kind of figuring out well first of all which brand is going to make the shoe that works best for me and then within that brand which models are best for my feet and you know i've always found kind of since i've gotten into ultra running is like there's there's a lot of like uh i think a lot of value in kind of having a bit of a rotation with your footwear so for me like i really like a low profile shoe i like the the firmness. I like the lightness of it. Um, and I really like how that builds the strength of your lower legs. Um, so I do a lot in lower profile stuff, but I'm also kind of mindful of the extra amount of work or where, where that type of footwear is going to put the impact forces more, more drastically. And, you know, so like if you have that real firm midsole or no midsole, and if you're using like a minimalist shoe, Mm. you're going to land very precise so that precise landing is likely going to put you in a more biomechanical position. So your impact forces are going to be like distributed in the way your body's more or less intended to. So you're kind of using your foot as like a spring versus kind of having your foot plant where it wasn't meant to and having those impact forces end up like in your knees, hips, lower back and things like that. So I like the foundation to be on that firmer platform, but then also a softer shoe, I think can be useful if you have like a workout where you, you did enough where like now my lower legs are really sore, but I have another run to do the next day. Then it can be like, assuming you're like, you fine tune your mechanics enough. I think that soft, that soft point of impact can be useful on some of those days to kind of relieve that area that got worked really hard the day before and maybe distribute those impact forces a little differently. Um, so I'll do that too. I like, I like, uh, like a flat bed or a balanced cushion. So like the front of the shoes, the same distance off the ground as the back. So regardless of whether it's a really cushioned shoe or a low profile, like minimalist type shoe, I like to have that even distribution. Um, you know, I, I like the foot shaped toe box personally. So it's, uh, you know, those are, you figure out some of those things that work for you. And, um, I think at the end of the day, when it comes to running, I think people are trying to avoid the most is getting injured. So like finding the shoe that's the most comfortable for you tends to kind of put you in a position to reduce your injury risk the most. And, um, sometimes I think it's just narrowing that down is the hard part for people. Cause there's like hundreds of options out there. Yeah. That's the, I've, I've shifted to uh, barefoot doing the odd barefoot running. And it was actually after you'd mentioned that same strategy on the Joe Rogan podcast that I, I was like, this makes sense. So the days when I feel like my, just for a lack of a better word, my legs are getting lazy and mm-hmm. my feet are getting lazy. I'll throw on my my barefoot shoes and I'll go for a I'll go for a five k in that. Now I mm-hmm. I don't know like 
I remember when I first started doing that, it was a massive shock to the system because I'd never done it before. I'd fallen into that trap of just letting the shoe do the work and my foot just kind of picking up the pieces and my body picking up the pieces. And the injury, the injury part is really interesting as well because, yeah, most people buy shoes to stop injury and to reduce that pain that they may be having. Mm-hmm. And it may work. It may work, but it could be an acute thing. It could be only that it's working for that specific time and you don't know where that that's changing and they're still called sort of deconditioning their their feet and their their body to let the shoe do the work and you're not you're not getting that mix of work on your body and the right amount of work and the right recovery and the right forces going through the right places um that's been a big shift for me just being able to whack on the the barefoot shoes when i need them um, Mm -hmm. and it's impacted my running style massively yeah, and I think it's interesting too because like people just for whatever reason they don't seem to look at their feet and even their lower legs maybe the same way they would like another muscle group in their body where like you know if 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 I had weak lower legs I could wear a type of shoe and a bunch of different like bells and whistle type things that would maybe alleviate that but then I'm probably not strengthening that area so then like the next question is like, well, do you want to like actually strengthen that area? In which case you might want to just kind of start micro stressing that the, the, that area. So it gets stronger over time. And where people make a mistake, I think is they're like, Oh, I'm in these built up shoes with like orthotics or inserts and all this stuff. And I want to, you know, kind of address that and get a little stronger. So they throw on like the, the minimalist shoe right out the gate and start <laughs> doing all their stuff in that. And I'm just like, that'd be like, deciding after like five years of not touching a weight to go in the weight room and like do like a power lifting workout with one of the pros and <laughs> expect and expect to feel good the next day so like you kind of got to meet your body where it's at so if you have if you're dealing with a lot of injuries in the lower legs or a lot of soreness in the lower legs and things like that um you know i think some of those tools like inserts cushion shoes and things like that can be helpful to kind of let you do the level of running or the volume of running you're looking to try to do to kind of meet your performance goals. But if you can tease in a little bit of extra stress and development type stuff with your footwear over time and eventually get to the point where you can sustain, you know, running a fairly decent portion of your, your mileage in a low profile shoe, like that's, that's not a bad angle to kind of take. And it's, it's probably going to put you in a position to be less injury prone down the road. Yeah. You think it can change? Do you think you could get out of your orthotics into getting rid of them? Or have you seen that happen? Yeah, I think, I mean, it depends a little bit. Like, I think there's probably, there's cases where some folks are like, they're in in an orthotic due to some sort of imbalance or some sort of Mm. thing that's like, like unpreventable more or less, or not like you can't train it. But a lot of people, I think they're, they're more or less suffering from just being in what, what I would call essentially a foot cast their entire life. I mean, when you think about it, like at what age do they start putting shoes on, on kids? And, and the irony of that too, is like, if you just scale down an adult shoe to the size of the kid's foot, it's going to be like the equivalent of you put on a shoe that's like two or three times as thick for their body mm-hmm. size. And they're kind of the way their muscles are kind of like proportioned to, to the, to the way an adult's is. So like right out the gate, we're putting like these like really like kind of big, like limiting range of motion type casts on the, on their feet so it's like that's going to impact the way their feet develop it's going to impact the way their muscles develop so um i think a lot of people are fighting a battle of trying to reverse years and years and years of like atrophy and like positioning alterations and all that stuff and uh i think that's where it, 
that's where people get confused because they think like, well, oh yeah, I should be able to run in a barefoot shoe or a minimalist shoe or something like that because that's born with shoes. But they're forgetting the fact that, you know, they've spent two, maybe three decades wearing a cast. And I try to explain it as like, if I broke my arm and I went and I got a cast put on, I had that cast on eight weeks and that cast came off, there would be like a procedure to follow before I started going back to like use my arm at full function like I was before I broke it. So you got to kind of look at your feet the same way. Mm-hmm. If, if you've been wearing a typical shoe your entire life and you decide you want to kind of go with a little more of an actual position um, for you, but be ready that the mechanics are going to be different and your body's going to have to get used to that. So I think in a lot of cases, people can kind of reteach their body to move in the way that it was without a shoe, but the benefits of having a shoe, because when you think about it, like, um, I don't want to necessarily learn to run completely barefoot out on the roads because there are good, you know, like there's sharp rocks that yep. like having a nice shoe underneath your foot are great to be able to step on those. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you just go faster in that situation. Um, yeah. So like, I think, I think there's a, there's like a lot of like, when you, when you get into that category of like, everyone needs to be in this and that's kind of like mm. the, the best way. And then the other side saying, no, that's completely wrong. Everyone needs to have this and these options. Chances are it's like there's some some usage for both and then there's probably like a, a nice little medium somewhere in there for, for a lot of people. Do you recommend a lot of people you work with to go and get their, their gait looked at, their running style, their mechanics looked at so that, that that's something to just tick off the list? Yeah, I think even more, I think like where people maybe go wrong with that is they'll go and they'll get a gait analysis and it'll be like a one-dimensional analysis. So like someone will be looking at like, they'll be looking from behind. They'll be looking for like their foot to like pronate or supinate and then like prescribe based on that. Whereas I don't think the, 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 the research doesn't necessarily indi- indicate a huge injury risk to someone who naturally overpronates um, versus someone who doesn't. In fact, in a lot of the like kind of early shoe technology that was designed to help with an overpronation, what we ended up finding out was that like you're still basically pronating the same way just inside the shoe and it just doesn't look like it when you're in the shoe on a camera mm-hmm. so i think when when you get to like the the point where you're able to kind of like do maybe like a 360 degree analysis so you can see kind of where that foot is positioning um through a variety of different angles and maybe even pay a little more attention to like that side angle so we can see where your foot is landing in position to your bent knee to find out if you are overstriding and kind of putting your foot in what kind of looks like a check mark where your foot is planting down out in front of your knee, that's where I think people are running into a lot of issues is that overstriding kind of low cadence type of a positioning of their foot. And that's what's causing a lot of issues for folks. And, you know, that could be anything from just like them, like wearing shoes that weren't right for them that had a disproportion or like an imbalanced, like weight distribution that was pulling their foot out in front, Mm. or it was so cushioned that they felt comfortable striking at any point. So they ended up striking on their heel way out in front of their knee versus underneath that bent knee. And, uh, I think like, yeah, the, the running analysis can probably go a long way for a lot of people in terms of finding like, you know, what they could maybe work on to improve some of that or avoid some of these like overuse injuries or, um, kind of typical running issues that, that pop up for most people. Your kids, kids are the one I'm thinking of. Like they, there's a lot of, kids that are working with at the moment they they running styles just then i don't know what it is it must be it literally must be almost the shoes they're being put in it's just changing the way they're running because 
yeah, it's, it's almost like not when I hate saying it, like not when I was a kid, but literally to the point where I'm looking around going, some people can't move the way they used to. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like it has to be something to do with the, the shoes they're putting themselves in. Yeah. Yeah. It's like anything. I think it's like you find something that is like, it seems like a great idea. And I think generally speaking, shoes are probably a good idea, but uh, there's all these unforeseen consequences when you just start like, like not thinking through like, okay, so what exactly else is this going to change other than like protect our feet from harsh environments and things like that. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. But you know, the other thing too, is like when it comes to running form and stuff like that, it is kind of funny where like, if you do like a, like a, like a sport, like a skill sport, like like cricket or baseball, basketball, football, soccer, these type of things. It seems like, like when kids learn those, there's like a, there's a lot of like, kind of, this is what we need to teach you like skills before we actually even go out and do it. And they get kind of used to like doing these things that puts them in the position to be, you know, like successful within that sport. Whereas with running, it's almost like we just assume everyone kind of knows how to run. Mm. So it's, there's not as much education around, I think, like, let's look at kind of the way you're running before we send you out to do all this training and ultimately race and kind of learn something that's not in your best interest, but your body's going to kind of adapt to if you make it do it that way. Yeah. Most of those sports, the foundation is running anyway. So Mm -hmm. it just, it's, I actually do wish I had maybe I, I was I did a lot of running, but like I said, I did a lot of like speed endurance, but I wish I'd actually looked at maybe a little bit more how I could get efficiency because most of the time in a sport like cricket, what I was playing, we're playing long days. It's the part that matters the most in that sport they talk about is at the end of the day when everyone's tired and and, and that's where literally it's like the end of the race. You're trying to put in that last little bit to, mm-hmm. to do the best bit you can. And that I wish I'd built up enough efficiency all the way down, both through sort of like the ability to uh, probably nutrition as well, but but more my base level of fitness. And I, I doubt, 100% reckon that come from my um, my ability to to run more efficiently and have maybe gone to more barefoot running and more minimalist running, just understanding my feet, how they work a little bit better because now, now they're better than they've ever been. But um but yeah, I also wanted to ask you about where your mind goes when you're running. Just mm-hmm. that I know I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I'm really interested in where your mind goes when you're running. What is it that keeps you, like, for example, 12 hours on treadmill like that? There's got to be some places you go that are completely unique. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's that's probably the hardest question I ever have to answer because I think like sometimes with these long events, it's you end up thinking of like, the same thing or similar things over and over again. So when you finish, you, you think back, like I only thought of like a few things, but you, you kind of like process them over and over again. (laughs) And I think it differs a little bit too, from like event to event. So like if I'm doing like a a point to point trail race, there's enough change and enough like kind of variation that I can kind of focus on what's in front of me and just know, like, after I do this for a while, something will change. I can focus on that whether that be like, okay, now we're running downhill for a while. Now we're running uphill. Now we're running on a little more technical trail. You know, now it's smoother and you have a lot of different kind of like kind of interesting things going around in the environment. So it makes it, it it maybe just builds itself a little bit better. Um, With the track and some of these more kind of contrived type setups, it's, it, you do kind of run into this situation where you're kind of left with your own thoughts and not a whole lot of change. I think that's where it gets a little bit more interesting from, or at least different from like the mental standpoint. And for me, I think like 
I'm always just trying to think about like, I'm trying to use a lot of it to like reflect on like what I had to do to get to that position in the first place. Cause one thing I find very useful in these longer events is rather than looking at it as like this daunting, I'm going to be running all day type of a mindset. I think of it as like, when I start this race, I'm actually 99% of the way there because I spent the last four months, uh, you know, training and spending time, energy and all sorts of like resources to get ready for this. So like that was part of that piece too. And when I think about it like that, the time tends to go by a little faster. Um, you know, I also try to just think like, you know, days fly by all the time. So why can't mm. this one? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think when you just start to, you can kind of trick your mind or position your mind to maybe think of things more positively when you just frame it right versus letting it kind of do what it wants to do when you're getting tired out there, which is to focus on the negatives or, you know, ask questions and plant seeds of doubts and that sort of stuff. Um, so a lot of times I just try to go in with like enough, uh, enough like reminders of kind of like what I did in that specific training, like what mistakes I've made in the past, uh, you know, what are things I thought about and, and, uh, did during these events historically, did it work well or did it not? And kind of go from there and off, like ultimately it comes out to chunking the event where you, you can kind of count on like the first, like third of it going by pretty fast, um, mm -hmm. just by kind of default, uh, cause you're still pretty fresh. You've tapered and things like that. So you can almost just daydream a little bit. And then you kind of got to get a little more focused and, and start kind of thinking about like what your strategy is going to be. And if you're going to have to change anything or do anything differently based on kind of what happened in the first third. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, it's, uh, it gets, uh, it gets a little more, more tricky as it goes on. Cause you get these, like, you, you start to think about negative stuff a little more frequently and you have to like catch it a little more often, which is this like, kind of double-edged sword of like you're burning more mental energy trying to pay attention to that than you were in the beginning when it wasn't that difficult to kind of like avoid the negative self-talk and that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, so that's kind of like my, my strategy. And I, I think it gets, it gets a little easier every time to the degree that like you just have so many other points of reference from the past where you, you even remember specific things. Like for when I broke the outright world records for hundred miles in 12 hours, I remember thinking like, if I can get to 80 miles, that would be this like this uh, kind of like sweet spot in the race because I had had a, a race that I was ahead of world record pace through 80 miles four years earlier. And then I just didn't have it for like the last 20 miles to the degree that I needed to stay on world record pace. So I kind of saw that slip away. So part of it was like, okay, I need to get myself to that spot so I can kind of finally readdress that, that situation and, and do it right this time. So like, things like that, that you wouldn't have available to you if you didn't have like experiences doing it in the past, I think are really useful. And, and then it just becomes like this, like balancing act of like, am I still young and strong enough to execute this, this race, but have the, enough under your belt where you have the reference points to really be strong mentally from it. And, um, ultimately those two roads are going to meet at a certain age for each person. That's probably where we're going to have some of their best performances, which is kind of a cool way to look at just like the whole career of it all. Yeah. Wow. Have you got anything coming up that you're, you're aiming for at the moment? Um, nothing for sure. Just because nothing is quite for sure yet here yeah. in the States. And, um, it's, it's kind of goofy here too. Cause like, I mean, we have these 50 States that are all kind of different in terms of how they've handled and how they've, uh, been able to manage all the, the Corona COVID-19 stuff. So 
Um, you know, some states seem to be doing quite well and others are still struggling or having a second wave. And um, I happen to be in one of the states that has been getting a bit of a second wave. So yeah, oh. we're, we're uh, I don't have any concrete race. I did start my, my buildup for whatever I'll do next. So I've, I've been doing some of that short interval stuff the last few weeks, just because I assume like I'll probably have some opportunities at the end of the year or early next year. Uh, and I'll be in a good position to be able to peak for them when they do pop up later, late summer, early fall, and we get a little bit better of a, a foresight as to what's to come. Uh, but nothing, no, no exact event at the, at the moment. Yeah. Look, just, just, just before we finish off, is there anything that you kind of give for advice for people for the, when they're trying to get into achieving sort of similar the sorts of things that you've done or is there a sort of I guess a secret to the the success that you've had that you believe is something that's held you in good stead over the years yeah I think um some of the like the big kind of like uh pieces of advice that I think carry through is just like first of all like um start from where you're at so it can be really easy I think to get motivated for a sport like this by saying oh I'm seeing so-and-so did this or you know, the big one is like, you know, David Goggins, people are, everyone seems mm. to get motivated by him these days. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, I mean, for obvious reasons, but you have to remember like, you know, David did his first attempt to get into running was a failed trip around the block. So like people see what he's doing now and they think, okay, that's where I want to be. And that's great. Like, I think that's awesome to have that long-term goal and decide I'm going to take myself from where I at. I'm going to go, you know, get to a level I would have never dreamt, dreamt about before. That's great. But if you're going to have a big, long-reaching goal like that, you want to give yourself some smaller goals along the way that kind of keep you motivated and keep you focused. Because um, you could have a great four, five, six weeks of training and uh, have this big goal like you know six months down the road that just starts to lose its, its uh, intrigue as you kind of get the wear and tear of things. But if you have like small benchmarks, like at two weeks, I want to be here at four weeks. I want to be here at six weeks. I want to be here. So you're getting that constant re positive reinforcement when you kind of check those off. Um, that's, what's going to keep you going. So with that kind of comes this idea of this consistency. So consistency from where you're at, like if you're, if you've never run before in your life, don't be afraid to start, start slow. Don't necessarily go find someone who's been running for five years and say, I'm going to just parrot what they're doing you know, ask them, what did you do when you started running? Kind of get an idea from that mm. and start from where you're at so that you're kind of like gradually increasing your exposure to the, to the event or the, the skills that you're trying to develop. And eventually you'll find yourself where you want to be and you'll be, you'll be probably much better for it if you do it in a sustainable way. Um, the other thing I always remind people too, is like, especially in the sport of ultra running where you have such a range of things, like you can do like, the six day events on short loop courses, or you can do 50 Ks up in the mountains that are above 10,000 feet and you're climbing and descending all day long and then everything in between. So like pick something that you are really interested in doing the training for. Cause mm. kind of like what I said before, when you get to a, even a long race, you're still 99% of the way there. So you might as well enjoy that 99% that you are doing to get to that point. So like, if you want to be like running in a specific way or training in a specific way, um, you know, pick an event that's going to allow you to do that so that it's something where if you do even have a bad day at the event, you still feel like it was worthwhile to kind of go through that process and learn and kind of figure out more about, learn more about yourself. What's the bit you enjoy the most? Uh, I, I mean, I, I still really like the training. Um, yeah. I think for me, like I, I love the racing too. And that's kind of like 
more or less like kind of the, 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 the end product or like the celebration of like all the work you did to get ready for it. It's like, you can kind of showcase what you, what you put into the training. But for me personally, I just really like the idea of saying like, deciding like, Hey, this is what I want to do. And then building that program to be specific for that. And then kind of, like I said before, looking for those little, like those improvements along the way and check those small goals off. I like that, like kind of going from the beginning to the end product. And I, I just really enjoy that. So like, I mean, I've had races where I've been about as fit as I ever haven't had a terrible race, but could still look back and say, okay, I'm so glad I did that. Cause I learned a lot about where I can find improvements, how I can like even look at my training different and kind of dissect workouts and things and, and tease out like what went well and what didn't and, and build off that. So I look at a lot of it as just kind of like this really big building project that is, uh, um, that's, it is fun to do regardless of the results. I think you're right with what you said about David Goggins as well. People f- look at the end product he's got right now and forget all of the failures that have gone in between. And, and I'm sure you've had those as well. And just the, the times that sucked the most was there anything that sucked the most that you can think that's a massive learner for me. And I'm, that's something I'm not going to do again. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, a couple of things, I think like my, uh, my 2017 season was one that just kind of had a lot of that where early in the year I got into the Western States 100, which is just a very difficult race to get into. And it's like one of the most competitive, the most competitive in North America, probably second in the world from ultra marathons, um, at the hundred mile distance. And, uh, so I, I had been coming off kind of a more of a flat training program. So I started kind of skewing things more to climbing, descending. And I, I just got like a little too aggressive, I think, in that plan and, and ended up getting myself injured. Uh, so I was uh, sidelined for about seven weeks before I could start running again. And, and then, uh, you know, I started to kind of get back to my fitness by like late summer, early fall, and then um, had a, a solid race at, a, at an event called Cavalina, uh, but not as good as I would have liked. And then I kind of parlayed that into a an attempt at the hundred mile world record that ended badly. I ended up dropping out at 60 miles. It was just like kind of one thing after the other there. And it's like, I think it's easy to like look at that stuff at the time and think like, man, when am I going to catch a break? And, but then you kind of forget, or it can be easy to forget. Like, even though like I didn't feel like I hit the nail on the head with any races that year, I still got in some good training and some learned some lessons as to what to maybe avoid when it comes to like, race strategy and tactics and things like that, that I've been able to carry forward into, um, you know, races after that. And in 2019, I had by far my best racing season of my life. So, you know, I look back at some of that and think, even though like on paper, 2017 looks like a bit of a wash from a results standpoint, it was a year that I learned a lot and I definitely needed it in order to have a year like I did in 2019. Yeah. I, it just, it shows you are just like a culmination of everything that's happened to you. And, and, um, it's incredible what you're doing, man. Like it's, it's unreal. Um, look, I really appreciate your time. Where, where is the best place for people to find you? You've got your podcast. We can link that in the show notes, but where, where's the best place for, for people to find you? Yeah. The easiest spot to kind of to link to anything I'm up to is my website, which is zachbitter.com. Um, yeah, uh, I'm probably most active on Instagram, which is, uh, at zachbitter and Twitter at zbitter. Um, podcast is human performance outliers or HPO podcasts. Uh, feel free to, to jump over and check it out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. Look, I really appreciate your time and, um, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Lewis it was a blast. Cheers, mate. 
Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Raising Your Game podcast. As always, you can support this podcast and it means the world to me if you're able to leave a review. So over on Apple Podcasts, if you scroll all the way down to the bottom of the episodes, click the number of stars you want to leave for this review. Hopefully it's a five-star review. Write a review and then click submit. It really does mean the world to me because it allows us to grow this podcast and get it out to even more people. So thank you so much for your support. I really do appreciate it as always. Also, again, don't forget to head over to sportyogi.com where you can sign up to be one of the first people to receive information and the beta version of the Sport Yogi app so that that is coming out really, really soon. And I'm so looking forward to getting that out to you. So head over to sportyogi.com and register today. Anyway, thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys soon.